I'll be reading from the book of Hebrews, three separate passages, one from chapter 1, and then we'll jump to chapters 12 and 13. Before I read that, though, I wanted to encourage you, as I was encouraged, we had a our latest membership uh, and information class. It's both for people who are f- pursuing formal membership at Bethesda, but also for others who just simply want more information about who we are and what we're about. So I had three signed up. And I don't know about you, but whenever I do one of these things, I'm just like, well, what if nobody shows up? You know, that kind of thing. Not, not saying anything about the reliability of the folks who signed up. It's just, a, a, you know, a fear. You work hard and, hello, Aunt Shula. So good to see you. And Shula has had a hard time over the last couple of months. And uh, so it's very, very, very good to see her there. So excuse my little interruption. Um, yeah, so yesterday, uh, one showed up. And then another showed up, and a total of five showed up. So three were signed up, and five showed up. And so it was a it was a really good time. At least I had a good time of uh, teaching and fellowship and uh, questions and answers. Uh, there was one point at which we spent maybe half an hour chasing the scriptures on a particular topic, and uh, it was a lot of a lot of fun. So uh, so I appreciate everyone who came. And uh, please pray for these five folks as they process whether Bethesda is the place for them that the Lord is preparing. So I just wanted to share that with you and encourage you as I was. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. 
To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 14, 15, and 16. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Now we'll turn to chapter 13 and do the 16 verses 1 through 16. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for sending us your Son, through whom 
you now and forevermore speak your truth, your life, and the way back to you. Lord, we pray for Pastor Yuri as he comes to, to preach your word, to teach us from the Bible, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that every one of us will hear, whether for salvation or for encouragement and comfort or growth, let none of us walk away from here not hearing your word to us, both individually and as your people, a congregation of your saints. Lord, thank you for the five who came yesterday for our new members and information class, and I pray your blessing upon them and As they deliberate, I pray that you would speak to them clearly. I thank you for the encouragement that you are giving these days in many ways. Join us now as we lean forward in our chairs to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark. One of the things that I've noticed about preaching is that it's always an adventure and uh what i mean by that is is really that whatever whatever it is that i'm preaching about always in the week that i'm preaching i feel a particular challenge a particular temptation and uh this week is 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 like no other, and they're not they're usually just personal things that only mean something to me but uh but every week is an adventure. There's a romance in preaching. And I've learned to just kind of roll with it. We're going to read one additional passage this morning from Hebrews. This is, uh, I'll start in Hebrews 1.14 and read a little bit into chapter 2. That's on page 1161 in your pew Bibles. Hebrews 1.14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation. This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The word of the Lord. Well, over the past month, we've been talking about the vision for Bethesda Church that I feel the Lord has given to me. And this vision, as we've said, has been largely inspired by the book of Hebrews. 
So referencing Hebrews on a broad scale, as well as in some detail, we've been talking about things that are fairly obvious. That is, some things that are kind of lying on the surface of the book. Things like a commitment to the scriptures and to covenants, both to the biblical covenant between God and us, and also to the covenant between one another in the document that we call our constitution. And we've been talking about priorities like accountability and care as well as a responsibility to steward our resources well. And I've also brought out priorities that Hebrews more assumes than talks about extensively. Things like a commitment to prayer or the priorities of preaching and of worshiping together as the whole family of God, which we talked about last week. Well, today we're going to talk about the final two priorities in the vision document, evangelism and technology. Now, when you read the book of Hebrews, those are probably not the first things that you think about as you read through it. There's, there's no command, for instance, in Hebrews that sounds like any of the other ringing gospel charges in Scripture, like, go ye therefore and make all disciples of all nations, or ye shall receive power and ye shall be witnesses unto me, or even be ready always to give an answer to every man. And of course, there's nothing in scripture that directly addresses things like live streams or, or social media. But, of course, Hebrews is more than just a sermon, a word of exhortation, a call not to shrink back. Hebrews is also a deep meditation on what salvation is. And how God has communicated salvation to us. So I spent some time this past week going once again through the whole book of Hebrews so that I could write down all the various ways that Hebrews describes salvation. And it took up five handwritten pages. And then I organized all those references under common headings, and I was amazed at the variety that I found in how Hebrews describes Salvation. It could be a whole sermon series on its own. Now, I'm not going to flesh all these things out this morning, but just to give you a taste of what I found, I'll, I'll read you just my headings. So, salvation is a message that is something that can be communicated in words, something that primarily is communicated in words. Salvation is belief. Salvation is belief that pleases God. Salvation is a calling, an invitation from heaven to draw near. Salvation is deliverance. Deliverance from slavery as well as deliverance to a refuge of grace. Salvation is redemption. Christ's offering of himself for sin that turns away God's wrath and turns our hearts to holiness. Salvation is trust in God's promises. Trust in the assurance that we find in a new way to live, the new way of faith. Salvation is help. 
It's rest and resistance. That is the ability to resist temptation. Salvation is equipping and empowering and enlightening. That is the kind of help that salvation gives. Rest, the ability to resist equipping, empowering, and enlightening. Salvation is an inheritance. That's one way we often don't think, we don't often think of salvation as an inheritance. And by that word, Hebrews doesn't mean something that you hoard, something that you're entitled to, but it's a birthright. Salvation is a birthright to cherish and to pass along to others, to share. Salvation is a certain hope, something that's guaranteed and administered by Jesus, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. According to Hebrews, salvation is also suffering, meaning that you identify with Jesus in his suffering. Expecting not only that, like him, you will be considered outlandish, even outrageous, but that God will use your suffering to discipline you and to make you holy. Salvation is also obedience, a grace-enabled, humble, and patient striving after righteousness. And salvation is the determination to hold fast to a true confession and the confidence not to shrink back. A couple more. Salvation is time-sensitive. Salvation is guaranteed if you receive it today. But perhaps not if you wait until tomorrow. And finally, in Hebrews, salvation is glory. Glory, heavenly perfection that you can just start to taste in the here and now, but which you will have an eternity to discover in all its fullness. Since Hebrews has so much to say about salvation, it obviously has much to teach us about evangelism. First, because it gives us positive motivations for sharing the good news of salvation. And flowing from those, it gives us ways of evaluating the means that we use to share it. And that's where technology comes in. Now, we usually think of technology as stuff that humans have invented recently. Things like, things with mechanical or electronic components like planes or screens and computers. But earlier technologies also were intimately bound up in the history and the message of salvation. This is something we don't think of very often. But technologies have not only determined the way that salvation has been communicated, but even the shape that salvation took. Technologies have not only determined the way that salvation has been communicated, but even the shape that salvation took. Now, the most obvious technology in this regard is written language, right? This was not something that just came naturally to humans. Writing was an innovation. 
and one which God has used more than any other to spread the good news of his salvation. But how did technology determine even what salvation looked like? Well, think of the tabernacle. The tent that Hebrews talks about so much as being a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. The tabernacle relied on human technologies in every aspect of its construction, whether you're talking about resources extracted through hunting or animal husbandry, farming, forestry, or mining, or whether you're talking about artisanal use of raw materials and weaving, carving, and shaping, or more mysterious and sophisticated, you could even say scientific techniques like smelting, Combining copper and tin to make bronze, or casting that bronze or gold or silver to, to make the various, various furnishings of the tabernacle and the tools that were used in the tabernacle. Those are all technologies. And that's before you even talk about the global trade network that was necessary to acquire materials that were not found nearby. All of that is technology. And in other words, Moses couldn't have even thought about obeying God's instructions to build an earthly copy of the heavenly sanctuary, the holy place into which the blood of bulls was taken, that holy place that foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ and gave meaning to Jesus' seemingly senseless death, if God hadn't prepared and inspired earlier human innovation and worked through it, to give Moses the means to obey what he was asking him to do. Or simpler, yet in a way brutally sophisticated, you could think of the cross itself. Crucifixion is certainly not the most intuitive way to kill a person. Somewhere along the line, a human invented a simple torture device which relied on a diabolical understanding of physics as well as human physiology and psychology to inflict maximum pain and humiliation on its victims. In the cross, God used a technology, even a technology that was designed for evil, to carry out his will. To turn that evil to good. The point is that God uses means to communicate himself to us. He doesn't usually make himself obvious. He doesn't overwhelm our senses. He doesn't directly impress himself on our minds. And that's, incidentally, where Hebrews begins, as we heard Pastor Mark read. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets in many ways. It says that in the very first verse of this book. And, and so we learn, and, and then we learn right away that the, that the many ways that the preacher has in his mind actually refers not to technology, but to the fact that God usually didn't speak to even the prophets directly either. He spoke to them by means of the supernatural messengers we call angels. 
That's the reason that chapter 1 talks so much about angels, because the preacher assumes that his listeners will know that God spoke to Moses, the ideal Old Testament prophet, by means of angels. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this. It's not really something we need to spend much time on, but I'm mentioning it simply to underline that fact that God generally uses means to interact with us. And in this case, the means was angels. This isn't something that the preacher of Hebrews made up. It was a common understanding that was reflected in Jewish literature, even outside the Bible. The Apostle Paul draws out this fact, and in the book of Acts, Luke records Stephen making mention of this three times in his speech before the Sanhedrin. Paul says it merely in passing in Galatians 3. Now, the verse that I read for you earlier, verse 14 of chapter 1, it expands on this understanding about angels. The preacher even seems to make a generalization about the role of angels in the lives of those who are to inherit salvation. Look at it again. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, he asks, rhetorically. The obvious answer he expects from his hearers is a resounding, yes, yes they are. All angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. This is an intriguing mystery, one which we ought to remind ourselves of when we're feeling nervous about sharing the gospel with our loved ones and with our acquaintances. I've come to the conviction that those nerves that we all feel when we bear witness to the salvation we have in Christ Jesus stem in large part from a false idea that has crept into our thinking about what is going on when we do evangelism. The thing is, we've often labored under a misconception. We've come to think that it is solely up to us to convince people to trust in Jesus. So when we're talking about Jesus with unbelievers, we often feel more pressure than we ought to. We obsess over what we've said or, or, or what we've left unsaid. And we often wonder to ourselves, do I just not have what it takes to evangelize? And we start to worry even about conversations that just might turn to Jesus, as if we're going to be like a politician who turns up for unprepared for a debate. As if what matters in our interaction with our unbelieving friends is that we win the conversation. As if arming ourselves with one-liners that'll shut down their objections will win their hearts. Now this public debate approach has become popular in the age of social media. It kind of makes us feel like we're committed to evangelism. But in the end, the kind of apologetic that plays well on YouTube mostly appeals to those who already agree with us. So we're mostly talking past people who don't yet know Christ, rather than encouraging genuine soul-searching. Rather than opening up conversations about things that really matter, rather than sharing the truly good news that has transformed our lives, we're looking merely to score points off them. 
On the other hand, the pressure that most of us feel arising from that misconception that everything depends on us doesn't make everyone feel nervous. For some people, it, it, it makes them feel positively desperate. They enthusiastically lean into the role of evangelist as salesman. They don't go into battle so much as they try to close the deal. They sometimes even take a perverse sort of pleasure in manufacturing awkward situations, thinking that this is what they need to do to please God. On the other hand, that pressure we feel when when we think that it's all up to us to share Christ can also mean that when we're talking with those whose hesitation or whose hostility about Christianity is born out of their pain, we tend to change the message. We give up before we begin. We, we shy away about talking about the hard stuff with them, about talking about anything but God's love and acceptance. We often neglect to mention why people even need saving, why they need saving, and what or who they need saving from. But our passage from Hebrews, the one at the beginning of chapter 2, demonstrates that evangelism does not begin or end with us. We don't need to have a polished apologetic or a slick sales pitch. We don't need to compromise the message. We don't need to be afraid of talking with those who will ask us questions we don't have answers to. Now, we can't precisely know what it means that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. But one thing we can know is that when someone is saved, much more is going on than we can even begin to imagine. As fun as it is to speculate about that, the whole thing with angels is actually not that important in practical terms for us, though. It just tips us off to the fact that evangelism starts and ends with God, not with us. The most important thing, Hebrews tells us, is who announced the great salvation. It wasn't angels, and it isn't us. Verse 3 tells us that it is the Lord who first announced this great salvation. It's the Lord who announced the great salvation. And as I said before, the rest of the book of Hebrews goes on to describe what that salvation is like. Now, verse 4 tells us that after that announcement, God himself bore witness to the great salvation by other means. By signs, by wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And God continues to do that. In other words, not only salvation, but evangelism is initiated by God, helped along by angels, and ultimately carried, through, carried out through Christ's own intercession as he sits on his heavenly throne. 
And his intercession, among other things, brings about miraculous and mysterious interventions that we can't even begin to imagine and over which we have absolutely no control, but which do result in saving faith. So, what do we do? What role do we have to play in evangelism? Look at the very end of verse 3. It puts it very simply and plainly. In each and every conversion story, while Jesus announced the great salvation he won for us, and God testifies to it through signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit, in between, those who heard Jesus' words confirmed them to us, the book of Hebrews says. Confirmed them to us. We confirm the great salvation that Jesus announced and that God bears witness to supernaturally. Well, what does that mean? What does confirm mean? The Greek word that's used here is a word that refers to walking on solid ground. This paints kind of a vivid picture for us, doesn't it? Those who have heard the announcement of the great salvation, when they live lives that have clearly been changed and shaped by that salvation, they encourage others to walk on the same solid ground, the same solid path. But, The fact that it needs to be confirmed implies something about how most people perceive this great salvation. It implies something about the nature of that gospel path, which is that the pathway is not obviously firm. To most people, in other words, the gospel message does not at first seem to be a reliable one. And that's consistent with what we hear in the rest of this sermon that we call the book of Hebrews, especially the parts that talk about suffering. What Hebrews says about faith, that it is being certain of what we do not see, also points us in that direction. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is counterintuitive. The story it tells about the world and about the meaning of life does not accord with what we can see plainly with our own eyes. What we see is that the strong survive. What we see is that the rich prosper. What we see is that the weak and the poor are exploited. What we see is that people who ignore those hard realities of life are naive. And they're liable to be taken advantage of themselves. In other words, those who have heard the announcement that Jesus has made about his great salvation, we who have heard this announcement that Jesus has made about his great salvation must demonstrate in every way that this path, the path of Jesus, is secure. Because it doesn't seem to most people like it is. 
We must show people that it is the right path, that it is the path that leads to life, that it is not a treacherous path or a deceptive path, a path on which gullible people happily set out on only to be swallowed up by quicksand, lost in the wilderness, or devoured by predators. We need to show them that it's not that kind of path. And it's especially urgent that we do so because, as the beginning of verse 3 also mentions, there is an alternative to confirming the great salvation. And that is to ignore the great salvation. That word, ignore, means just what it says, to disregard something, to, to take no heed of it, to pay no attention to it. In other words, it is possible for someone to hear the announcement that Jesus has made, maybe even for them to pledge allegiance to it, and yet remain utterly unaffected by it. Or at least to allow aspects of your life not to be shaped by it. In other words, we can loudly proclaim that we are Christians, and yet in our actions and in our words, even in words that are technically correct, we can do the opposite of confirm to those who are watching us. Opposite of confirming that the path we have chosen is the right one. As we all know, it is possible to live in such a way that undercuts the announcement of salvation that makes the path of Jesus seem like it is indeed a treacherous one, the deceptive path that it always appeared to be. We all know people who have been hurt and confused because they blindly supposed, they blindly followed a supposed Christian who took advantage of them. We've seen time and time again Christians who broadcast through their words and their actions that the unbelieving world's suspicions about Christianity are well-founded. So, we rightly strive to live lives of holiness. Lives that are consistent with the gospel. Consistent with the truth that seems so counterintuitive to the world. And that's what those later passages from chapters 12 and 13, which I asked Pastor Mark to read, are all about. When the great salvation is confirmed by those who hear it, it looks like the kind of life that Hebrews talks about in those later chapters. A life lived in peace with all. A life free of bitterness. A life of sexual purity. A life that cherishes the long heritage that brought it into existence rather than throws it all away to satisfy a ravenous appetite. A life of love. A life of hospitality. A life of service to the poor and the oppressed. A life free from the love of money. A life of contentment. A life that trusts that God will never leave us nor forsake us. A life of obedience. A life of faith. A life of stability and consistency. A life lived outside the camp, so to speak. A life that it's not tossed about by fads not disturbed by fear, not influenced by groupthink, 
a life of sacrifice, a life of selflessness and worship. And all that is right and true and tends to confirm the truth of the great salvation that Christ announced. All those things that I was just paraphrasing from Hebrews 12 and 13, we should indeed strive for in order that God may use us as his means to confirm that great salvation that we have heard to a generation which has not trusted him yet. But what we tend to think about less often is that it's not only the way that Christians live that either confirms the gospel or displays a shocking disregard of it. The way in which Christians communicate the great salvation itself, the way that we proclaim it, can confirm it or tend to betray the fact that we disregard it. Does the way that we tell others about Jesus confirm that counterintuitive path of salvation? Or does it tend to make them suspicious of what we're saying? Or confused by it? Well, how can we know the answer? Obviously, one message is the content of the message that we preach itself. We must be faithful to the scriptures. But even so, there is a way to undercut the message even while technically we are being faithful. That is, we can ignore, we can disregard the nature of the very salvation as we are proclaiming it in the way that we are proclaiming it. Consider the headings I used earlier to organize what Hebrews has to say about salvation. One way we can disregard it and make it hard for people to find the path is simply to refuse to accept that salvation is a message. A message of deliverance and redemption to which people must be called. Using words to believe and to trust in today. At the same time, when our evangelism is marked by desperation or combativeness, we are disregarding the fact that salvation is a sure and certain inheritance, that there is nothing in the whole universe that will frustrate God's purposes. When we succumb to the temptation to apply pressure to people, to berate them or belittle them into making a decision, we're disregarding the help that God promises. But when we downplay the holiness to which God calls us and which he affects in salvation, we disregard obedience and commitment that are part and parcel of salvation. Well, the aspect of salvation that we are tempted more than any other to disregard is that salvation on this earth means suffering and sacrifice. Of course, this is the sticking point, isn't it? The aspect which doesn't seem to really fit with the idea of salvation. How can salvation be suffering? The two things obviously don't go together. And before I go further, I should confess my own sense of failure and inadequacy, my own worry that 
evangelism just isn't something I'm good at, isn't something that I'm personally suited to. But again, that sense of failure and inadequacy is based on a particular picture of evangelism that I grew up with. What I called earlier a misconception, a distortion, that to be an effective evangelist you must either be a debater or a salesman. That, or someone who's willing to become all things to all men in order to win some, a phrase that in our time has come to mean someone who uses whatever means they need to in order to get as many people saved that they can, including being willing to dilute or massage the truth. But salvation, the Bible tells us, salvation is suffering. Central to the gospel message is the suffering of our Lord. Not only that, but the only way that any of us can be saved is to accept our personal responsibility for causing Jesus to suffer. The only way up is down. The only way to glory is through humiliation. Because that message is so offensive, so hateful to most people, the bearer of the message of God's deliverance is, more often than not, someone who is hated, someone who ends up suffering themselves. But the picture of the evangelist that we have inherited, on the other hand, is not one of a suffering servant, but of a person who is a projection of power in our culture. In the modern world, that means a person who is a conspicuous public speaker, an obvious influencer who successfully bends the resources of a market economy to his own purposes, which just so happen to be a purpose that benefits him just as much as it benefits the cause he's espousing. That's why the figure of the lonely missionary is both foreign and intriguing to us. Missionaries are people who, in the eyes of the world, don't really matter. Who go out into the world to share Jesus with people who, in the eyes of the world, don't really matter. Armed with very little besides a Bible. These are people who personally stand to gain very little and yet are willing to give up everything for the sake of the gospel. This is why we at Bethesda talk about missionaries so much. Why we have historically devoted so many resources to missions, to missionaries and their families. This is why we devote a month to missions and why we send a thank you every Christmas. And this is why even though they maybe maybe don't do anything that benefits you personally, you should consider making at least a small contribution to that Christmas thank you. Acknowledging the personal sacrifices that they make. Acknowledging that they, what they have undertaken, joyfully and with humility. Sharing the gospel, the great salvation of our Lord, with those who can give nothing to them in return. Our missionaries are our examples. People who themselves are following the example of our Lord. They are people who have heard the great salvation announced by the Lord and who confirm it in the way that they live 
and in the way that they share it, not only far from the limelight, but often despised by public opinion. They are able to confirm God's great salvation because they understand deeply the type of mission that God himself is carrying out in the world and the type of message that the gospel is. Their message and their mode of delivering it are internally consistent, as is their way of life. And while the people with whom they share the gospel may not get it or embrace it for themselves, they can at least see that the path that they're being pointed towards is being tread by people they can trust. In the same way, we must consider how we share the gospel with those around us. Whether we're living it. Whether we're sharing it in a way that's consistent with the message. And that includes how we use technology. We must recognize that technologies have a role to play, obviously. And we must use those technologies. But we also need to recognize that they are powerful tools. Technology is even an expression of power in itself. So the way in which we use it can either confirm or disregard the gospel. We humans get excited by power, of course. But now, especially in an age where tech is so powerful that it almost appears magical to us, we tend to be confused about it, as if tech can be conflated with God's spirit. We need to understand that if the tabernacle was a copy of heavenly things made with human technologies, things like live streams and videos are only heavenly in the sense that they are themselves copies of reality. But make no mistake, they are at best copies of copies. Representations of things that are in the world, not of things that are in heaven. The power that they exploit is very much of this world. We can't see the power that's being used to make a Zoom call happen, but we must not allow ourselves to be tricked into thinking that it is the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we know that those technologies, as useful as they are, do not engage us with nearly the same emotional impact that personal interactions do. They're helpful, but they're no replacement for them. And we must not allow ourselves to use them in ways that disregard or ignore the gospel. But if we understand the type of mission that God himself is carrying out in the world, if we understand the type of message that the gospel is, we will start to get more exercised and energized by the movements of God's spirit. We'll get more energized and excited about the movements of God's spirit than we are by the technology that we use to enable them. Sometimes we get more excited by the technology than we do the conversations. 
we're going to get more energized and excited about those little opportunities that we have for conversation about Jesus with friends and family. We're going to get excited in knowing that we can invite them to a Sunday service confident that they're going to hear the gospel preached. We'll get involved in developing a strategy for our church to share the gospel in our neighborhood. We'll start to consider together whether we can use these technologies that we have at our disposal in ways that will more effectively start conversations with friends and family, in ways that are more consistent with the spirit of the gospel message, and to encourage even strangers around us in our local sphere to come here to Bethesda and see what this great salvation is all about. See whether the people who are telling them about it are walking and talking in a way that confirms the message or disregards the message. See whether the path only appears shaky but really is secure or whether it swallows up those who choose to walk along it. See whether those who are calling me to walk along it are willing to bear the shame and suffering that Jesus himself did outside the camp or whether they're just using it, that message, to project their own power and status, to win converts in order to protect their place in society. Of course, we know the answers to those questions. But the people out there don't. Now, contrary to what we've often come to expect, evangelism is not a lone wolf activity. Evangelism is something that we covenant to do together as a church. We need to covenant with one another, first of all, that we are going to share the message of the gospel in the first place, using words in our conversations with our friends and family. They were going to covenant together to invite them to hear it preached in the context of the worshiping community. Because that itself, this itself, this community of believers committed to walking the path, to helping one another to do so faithfully, that in itself is a powerful indication that the path itself is firm, however it may appear from the outside. I can guarantee that if we who have heard the great salvation of our Lord commit to confirming it in these ways, not to disregarding it in the way that we live it or share it, if in particular we are willing to embrace the suffering that lies at the heart of it, regardless of whether or not we find success the way the world defines it, we will come to the glory that's promised by our Lord at the end of the path. Let's pray together. Lord God, we often think of evangelism as something simple, something that's just... or something that, 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 that is up to us only 
But Lord, we praise you and we thank you that much more is going on. That we are simply confirming by the way we live and the way that we talk about the message of salvation. We are simply confirming what you have already announced, what you began, what you are carrying out, and what you will finish. Thank you that we can walk with much more confidence than we typically do when we talk about evangelism, that we don't need to be consumed with guilt or consumed with um, anxiety, but rather that we can know that you have gone before us and that you are making the way for us and that you will bring us home to glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.